4. It'll be Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. If you're following along and you want to take notes, there is an insert there. The worship guide on the back side of the announcement sheet, and I'll reference that in a moment. Luke 4, 14 to 30. It's on page 859 and 860. If you're following along with the Pew I got an email last week from someone I had never met, someone I had never heard of before, and uh, he is a, someone who got to know uh, Dan Breed and Appleton just a little bit, and he said he's uh, interested in moving to the, the valley somewhere to plant a church, and he had talked to Dan, and he wanted to come and talk to pastors from around different cities in the valley and find out a little bit about what's going on here, and so I was like, yeah, hey, you can do that, so... On Friday afternoon, James and I got together with him for coffee at New Moon, and I was like, hey, give him a little taste of downtown Oshkosh, and so we went to New Moon, and we met, and walked in, introduced ourselves, and I said, oh, is this your first time in Oshkosh? And he said, no, actually, I grew up here, and I was like, oh, like, here's this guy who grew up in Oshkosh, who has been away for quite some time, but is coming back and is asking us yahoos about, like, life and ministry in Oshkosh, you know, we're newbies here, I mean, we know a little bit, but we don't probably know Oshkosh as well as he does, but it was just this interesting kind of paradox, right, to see how, how that all lined up and, and to see him coming to us for advice. I think that dynamic for him of coming back home after being gone for a long time and, you know, a place he kind of, kind of knows but, like, doesn't really know, if you've ever had that experience of moving away for a while, maybe going to college or moving somewhere and then going back to your hometown, you experience some hard realities, right? The reality is that people move on with their lives, right? Things change. Uh, it's not always the way it used to be, right? You might go back ex expecting like, oh, they're just going to welcome me in with open arms. But it doesn't always happen that way. And it might be easy to feel misunderstood. It might feel like, how do I kind of break back in? How do I get to know people again? And it can be, it can be difficult. It can be dif difficult to feel misunderstood in the very place that you feel of all the places in the world, right? I should be understood here in my hometown. Well, fortunately for us, if, if you've ever experienced that, Jesus was no stranger to this type of misunderstanding. Last week, James shared with us about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. We saw that Jesus succeeded, right? He, he faced the temptation. He overcame the temptation. He succeeded where Adam failed. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not only was Jesus no stranger to the temptations of Satan, he was also no stranger to the struggles and the conflicts that are common to all of us in our relationships with other people. He was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. He had his words twisted and used against him. That should be a great comfort to us. And though we ought to look to Jesus for comfort when we are misunderstood or when we're accused falsely or when our words get twisted, we also need to realize that we are not perfect and sinless like he was. I think there's a danger sometimes as Christians, and I experience this too, to, to have this martyr complex where we just we feel like the world is against us all the time, which in one sense is true. But we, we try to identify so much with 
like there's, you know, there's, we don't recognize the role that we have to play in it, right? We can't fully compare ourselves to Jesus in that way because he was sinless. We have to come and recognize all the conflict we have, all the, all the drama in our life, we have a part to play in that too, right? It's not just other people accusing us and misunderstanding us. So while, yes, we need to relate to Jesus, we need to be careful in this regard. So we're going to see in our passage today, we're going to see the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth, in his hometown. And what I want us to do, instead of us putting ourselves in Jesus' shoes in this narrative, I think we are meant to put ourselves in the shoes of those in the synagogue. And instead of criticizing them for rejecting Jesus, the anointed one of the Lord, we are to realize how easily we do the same thing. And by God's grace, we will see the hope for lost sinners that Jesus came to proclaim, and how by faith in him, that same hope can be ours. So let's go to our text, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in this hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray again. Father, we need to hear your word. We need to receive your word this morning. God, would you penetrate our hearts? Would you speak to our condition? Would you speak to our need for you and your grace and your mercy? God, open our eyes to see Christ for who he is, to receive him, to live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going
going to attempt to answer two questions this morning. They're on your outline there if you're following along. First question, who is Jesus? Second question, what has he come to do? And if you're used to following along with my outlines, it's not quite how it usually is. I usually kind of break it up and, and follow along the passage following the, the verses, but this is kind of more of an overarching, these, these questions are going to kind of relate to the whole passage. Um, I think this is, is really the overarching questions of the whole Bible, right? Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? It's certainly the focus of the four Gospels in particular. And so if you're taking notes, you might be kind of going back and forth a little bit between these two sections, and that's, that's okay, that's kind of how I designed it. But the question, who is Jesus, speaks about his identity, Right? Who is he? Who, who does he, does he claim to be? We might say the person of Jesus. And then what has he come to do? Talking about his calling. What was he sent to do? What mission did he come to earth to fulfill? We usually talk about his work. So we talk, talk about identity and calling, which is language we use around here a lot. Or we talk about his person and his work. In the fall, we were in the Gospel of John, and we looked at Jesus' I Am statements. And this was really... These two questions were pretty much the focus of the I am statements. What claims was Jesus making about himself? Who is he? And based on those claims, what has he come to do? It's also been a big emphasis so far in the first three chapters of Luke. In the first two chapters, we saw the birth narrative. We saw Jesus being declared to be the Son of God. He is the Redeemer and the Deliverer. He's the King. He's the Savior. And he's the Messiah. Now in chapters 3 and 4 here, we have the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And this, his public ministry kicks off with three dramatic events. The first one is his baptism. Now in Jesus' baptism, we see his identity as the representative of God's people. He comes and he stands in solidarity with his people. He comes and he represents us. And this points to him coming and taking our sin upon himself. So that's the identity. And then we see this confirmation of his calling by the Father as the Father speaks from heaven and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. The second dramatic event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry we saw last week is the temptation in the wilderness. There we see his identity as our defender. He's the one who stands against the devil on our behalf. He defends us before the Father. He resists perfectly where Adam failed and where we failed. Again, we see the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Spirit as he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. The third dramatic event, then, that we see is here today in the synagogue in Nazareth as Jesus kicks off his teaching and preaching ministry. I believe this scene here this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. This scene is, is kind of a framework, it gives us a paradigm. To understand everything that comes after it. This gives us a framework to understand Jesus' teaching and what he came to do and what he was all about. Before we come to the scene here in Nazareth, Luke gives us this little brief introduction in verses 14 and 15. And he kind of bookends this whole section. We've been talking about this a little bit the last, the last few times. Luke likes to do this. It's called an inclusio. He'll start a section with a word or a phrase. And then he'll end the section with that same thing, kind of tying it all together. And these are kind of these boundary markers. If you're reading through your Bible and you see those things like that at, at the beginning and end of the section, it means you should pay attention, right? It means there's something that the author is trying to
trying to point out to you, trying to get you to focus on. So Luke bookends it here with verse 14. There's a couple things that are happening. The first one is geographical markers. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So these geographical markers at the beginning of, in verse 14 and then verse 44, which is the end of this whole section, we're going to see that next week. Galilee and Judea are these boundary markers, and Jesus' ministry from 414 here all the way to 950 are going to be happening in the regions of Galilee and Judea, okay? Now this is really important because in 951, the whole Gospel of Luke shifts, and it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So once you hit 951 in Luke, it's all going to Jerusalem, going to the cross, okay? So everything we're going to see here for the next several months, we're not even going to get to 950 before the summer, so we'll probably pick back up on that in the fall. So we're going to be in this for a while. This whole ministry is going to be Jesus in Galilee, in Judea, a lot of his ministry to the Gentiles, and that's kind of what we're seeing kicking off in this confrontation here. Again, notice he returns in the power of the Spirit. Uh, he was led at the beginning of this chapter, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then, and then a, a report about him goes out through all the country. In verse 37, which we'll see next week again, and we're going to see that a report goes out. And it says that he was being glorified by all. And we're going to see how quickly, we already read it, but we'll, we're going to see how quickly that, that mentality that they have. They're glorifying, they're speaking well of him. We're going to see how that just does a complete 180. So let's take a, let's take a look at this scene then in the synagogue in Nazareth, starting in verse 16. First, Luke reminds us that this is where Jesus had been brought up, and that it was, his, it was his custom to attend the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, I don't think Luke is saying this here to just guilt us into church attendance, like, look, Jesus went to the Sabbath, that was his custom, you better get your butt in church. But I do think, if the very Son of God, the perfect Son of God, who knew the Scriptures perfectly, didn't need to be taught by anyone, if he didn't forsake the regular assembling together of God's people in corporate worship, brothers and sisters, how much more do we need it, right? How much more do we need it to come and to sit under God's word? Not to come and listen to me or listen to James or listen to Chris, preach at you, but to come and sit under the ministry of the word of God. So let that be our custom as well. And then next, Jesus stands up to read, and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and he unrolls this big scroll, and he finds Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which at the time there was no such thing, they didn't have the numbers, he knew where it was, he found it, and he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which we read earlier, and the content of what he reads answers the questions before us, who is Jesus, and what has he come to do? We're going to look at three things that we see here in this, in this quote from Isaiah. Three identity things about his identity, who he is. First, he is the Lord's anointed. Second, he is the proclaimer of good news. And third, the deliverer of captive sinners. The Lord's anointed, the proclaimer of good news, and the deliverer of captive sinners. So let's look at each one of these in turn. First is the Lord's anointed. If you've read much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you'll know that anointing is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, the word actually means to, to rub or to smear oil onto something. 
So the kings in Israel and the high priests in Israel were anointed with oil, and it meant that they were set apart for service to the Lord. There's this imagery of holiness and being set apart. And then Jesus reads here from Isaiah the prophet, let us not miss the significance of this for the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. We see that here in this quote. And as we saw, the Spirit of God come upon Mary in the incarnation. And then the Spirit descended upon Jesus in his baptism. Then he was filled with the Spirit, and he was sent out in the wilderness to resist the devil's temptations. Now Jesus declares that all of the messianic hope of the Old Testament, all of the longings of God's people for thousands of years, they are all fulfilled in him here, the one who is the anointed one of the Lord, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. This word here, the Greek word that's used for anointed is the word krio, and that's the verb form of the noun Christos, and you don't need to be a Greek scholar to guess what Christos means, right? It's where we get the word Christ. So Christ or Messiah or anointed one, those are all synonymous words. So anywhere we see the word Christ in the New Testament, you could throw in any of those words, Messiah or anointed one. They all mean the same thing. And the weight of this identity claim must be felt when Jesus says here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. This is a massive claim to who He is as the Messiah. The next claim that He makes, the next identity claim, ties together His identity and calling. He is the proclaimer of good news. And it's specifically here, good news, the third line there in the quote, to proclaim good news to the poor. That is, those who have nothing by worldly standards. This is a major theme that we're going to see in Jesus' ministry, especially in his ministry in Galilee from chapters 4 through 9. We're going to see this emphasis on the poor, this emphasis on Jesus coming around lost and broken people. We'll see later, probably who knows when we get there, but we're going to see in chapter 19, Jesus say that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And there's often a connection here with the poor. It's not that he came to make people rich and prosperous. Remember who he said that to, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It was to Zacchaeus in chapter 19, right, who was a wealthy man. I think this shows us that there is absolutely zero justification from Jesus' ministry for the bogus lies of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And I hate you using that word gospel in connection with that. There is no justification that kind of teaching. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. He didn't come to make rich, happy Americans happier. The good news is not that God promises to deliver us from material poverty, but He comes to deliver us from our spiritual poverty. And we see that in Jesus' third identity claim, that He is the deliverer of captive sinners. You see this in the second half of verse 18 and in verse 19. A couple things to notice here in these verses. It says, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This word here for sent is used 20 times in the Gospels. It's a major theme. 20 times referring specifically to Jesus. And it's the word apostello. 
It's where we get the word apostle or sent one. Jesus is sent with authority to carry out God's mission. And then the last line there in verse 18 where it says, To set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's the same word here. It's the same apostello word that Jesus is sent to do this. He's sent to set them at liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So it speaks here about the captives and those who are oppressed. Captives is, obviously you can probably just figure that out. It's someone who's been captured, someone who's usually been carried away in battle. There's this war imagery of, of people who have been captured and enslaved. Hold that thought for a second. And then liberty is, is freedom or release from that slavery or that captivity. So Jesus has come to proclaim, to declare that those who were once captive are now free in him. This language here and the language in verse 19 where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There are strong parallels in this language with the year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25. Every 49 years, the people of Israel were to celebrate the year of Jubilee. They were to set aside the 50th year. People were to return to their land. Debts were to be paid off. Land could be bought back by the original owners if someone had to sell themselves or to sell their land. The land could be returned to its original owner after things had been paid off and there were different ways where all those things worked out. You can go read Leviticus 25. But People were to, to take care, there's always also commands to take care of the poor among them, to not enslave one another. If someone had hired themselves out to a fellow Israelite, they, they were to get their freedom back after working off their time when the year of Jubilee came, they were to be set free. But do you know how many times the year of Jubilee was celebrated in Israel's history? Zero. Do you think it's a coincidence that the next chapter after Leviticus 25 is Leviticus 26 in which we see the promise of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience? No way. Israel was not obedient to the Lord in keeping all his ways. And there's all this crazy stuff getting into the Sabbath rest for the land and all these things. The reason they went into exile, I'm not going to go into all that. But this idea of not celebrating the year of Jubilee is because they weren't even really celebrating the Sabbath years that were supposed to lead up to the year of Jubilee. They were disobedient to the Lord in all these ways, which was one of the reasons that God sent them into captivity. They could not keep the Lord's commands perfectly. They couldn't obey Him perfectly, and neither can we. And that's why Jesus comes to declare now here in Nazareth that the year of Jubilee has come. The true year of Jubilee, the setting free of the captives after all these years, at least 1,400 years since Moses wrote Leviticus, they had 28 opportunities to get it right. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this. Think about, think about being a child in Israel, right? Think about sitting there, sitting at home, over the dinner table, and your parents are reading the Torah to you. And every time you get to Leviticus 25, the kids are looking around like, why have I not heard stories of the year of Jubilee? And, like, Grandpa, did you ever celebrate the year of Jubilee? Like, you're a lot older than 50. And he's like, uh, no. And I don't, I can't even imagine, like, how they explain that to their children, right? And probably, in a sense, they didn't really understand what was going on in the midst of it. But I bet those kids were left with a sense of anticipation, right? Like, this sounds really good. 
Right? We see all these people around us oppressed. We see all these horrible things happening. We, we are promised of this reversal of fortunes and this would be great for our people. But why isn't it happening? Finally, after all these years, generation after generation of promises not being fully realized. That is the sermon that Jesus came to preach here in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. And that's the same sermon that we get to hear every Sunday as we sit here, week in and week out, in one form or another. It's the good news of the gospel. That your debts have been paid. That you don't have to work for it. That you're freed from your captivity. That you can return home. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you experience it? The deliverance from sin and death, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the time is now. The deliverance has already come. We don't have to wait for it. We don't have to say, man, we screwed up. What do we got to do to get this thing right, right? We can't fix it. But it's not enough to just know that. It's not enough to just acknowledge that, right? I think there's plenty of people out there, there's sincere people out there who believe that Jesus was a real person. They believe Jesus was really from Nazareth. They might even say, I believe Jesus really stood up in the synagogue and read from the scroll of Isaiah. But acknowledging that does not equal deliverance. We're not saved simply because we believe in a historical accuracy of what Luke is writing here, even though, right, he told us in chapter 1 that he's writing to be historically accurate. Even if we acknowledge that and we say, man, this must have really happened. Just saying, cool, that really happened. Again, that's not enough. If you read any of the four Gospels, you can't come away without being confronted by this one undeniable fact. Jesus demands a response from us. He demands a response from each and every one of us. He demanded it from those sitting there that day in the synagogue. He demands it of you when you're sitting alone reading your Bible. And he demands it of us as we sit here today pondering his claims. So the question for us is, how will we respond? How will we respond to Jesus' claims? Again, I argued earlier that we need to put ourselves in the shoes of those sitting in the synagogue listening to Jesus. So let's do that. Let's see their response. After reading from the scroll, Jesus rolls it up, hands it to the attendant, and sits down. We read it in verse 20. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were looking intently at him to see what was going to happen next. Sorry to scare you, Becca. Then Jesus drops this bomb on them in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? Yeah, what? What is this guy saying? And here comes their first response. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's little guy? There's an element, I think, of doubt or suspicion in that comment, right? We know him, right? He's a kid who grew up around here, right? He's a kid who used to follow Joseph around doing carpentry work, right? Yeah, he put the door in my house. Who does he think he is waltzing back into town and saying that this scripture is about him? Come on. Well, 
Jesus knew their hearts. And he knows what they're thinking about him. And he knows that they want him to prove himself. So he says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Right? Prove it. If this is who you say you are, prove it to us. Here, hometown, it can also mean homeland. Uh, so I think he might be talking in kind of two different ways here. He's saying Nazareth, right? The things you did in your hometown. But there's also this idea of, of kind of your homeland, right? Your home country. And Jesus' response, I think, points to that. He gives them two examples from the Old Testament to show how, some, how a prophet, he says, is not accepted in his hometown as well. In verse, in verse 24, he says that. So he's going to show here what, what he meant by saying a prophet is not accepted in his hometown or in his homeland. So he gives them two examples from the Old Testament. The first one is Elijah being sent, let's pay attention to these words, sent only, right? He was sent only to the widow at Zarephath in the land of Sidon during a famine while there were many widows in Israel, right? So he's saying God could have, God could have saved many people in Israel, but who did he send Elijah to? This Gentile, one, one Gentile woman, right? Elisha, second example, was sent only to cleanse Naaman the Syrian while there were many lepers in Israel. Many lepers in Israel that Elijah could have, Elisha could have healed, God sent him to one. And it was to a Gentile, okay? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not only claiming that the, the Spirit-anointed ministry from Isaiah 61, he's not only saying that that's about him, but he's equating his mission with that of the two most powerful prophets in Israel's history. And this is a direct rebuke to the people of Israel for not fulfilling their calling to be a light to the Gentiles. They had turned inward. They had not carried out the second great commandment to love their neighbors as themselves. And Elijah and Elisha's ministries made that clear. But they missed it. And so Jesus is here to remind them. To remind them of those things. So I said this, that this passage is, is paradigmatic. It, it provides a framework or a paradigm for reading Luke's gospel account. Because of the huge emphasis on the poor and the oppressed. On the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews. As we think about that, as we're going through Luke, as we're going through especially these verses, or chapters 4 through 9, I think we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in this area? And I'm not talking about just diversity in the church for the sake of diversity. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with race or ethnic background, but how are we doing at welcoming in those who are not like us? I think the dirty little secret that is not really a secret at all, that has been the, the reality of human history that has scarred the record of human history is this. And it's not, just, it's not just a problem in America. It's not just this ethnic and racial tension in America. It's that we don't welcome in people who are like us, or who aren't like us. We want to we close in, right? That's, every culture, every civilization has struggled with that. And it's easy to just feel like, oh, it's just this like certain problem in certain places in the world. But it's everywhere. And we see it in the Old Testament. God's people, 
They were the recipients of this kind of treatment from the nations surrounding them, right? But sadly, they turned around and became the perpetrators of that same type of treatment of other people. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only solution, it's the only hope for breaking down these barriers. The world tries to do it through programs, through education, through training, but those things cannot fix the human heart or heal the scars of history. The only path to reconciliation runs right through the cross of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we say that with our lips, and we walk out of these doors, and it's really hard to live it out, isn't it? Paul writes in Ephesians 2 to Gentiles like us. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, right? You who once were the captives who had been carried away, who didn't, weren't a part of the promises of the people of Israel, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, talking about Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Again, the widow at Zarephath, right? Name in the Syrian. Preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer in, sorry, strangers and aliens. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer the poor, oppressed, captive ones, right? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We just had a membership meeting, membership uh, meeting, what class? I don't know what I'm talking about. Membership class uh, last night, and we talked about this over and over, right? Jesus is the head of the church. He is himself the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul gives this picture of not just that Jesus has come to break down these barriers and to bring people together, but he pictures it as the church, as people are brought, as Jews and Gentiles are brought together, as these different barriers are broken down that only the gospel can do. It's not just coming together, it's coming together and growing and building into this new thing, right? This new thing that did not exist because of all the strife and the tension that existed between Jews and Gentiles. This is the glorious work of God's grace in Christ for his people, the church. And we are to model and display this reconciliation in our lives, in this world around us. Again, this is not easy, folks. In fact, this is impossible if we try to do this on our own. Livingstone Church, let us seek to be spirit-filled Grace displaying representatives of the saving power of Jesus to those around us. Let us receive and believe in Jesus, the Lord's anointed, and not reject him like those who heard him that day in Nazareth.
Their response was very telling. See it in verse 28. They were filled with wrath, and they drove him out, and they tried to kill him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. I love verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus was the ultimate escape artist. And they were enraged. They were filled with wrath because he had exposed their hearts. When Jesus comes to us and exposes our pride and our self-centeredness by his word, like he did theirs, will we let him do his work on our hearts? Will we bring those things before him? Will we confess our sins before him and lay those things down at his feet? Or will we try to hold on to them and say, i got to get myself together first, right? Again, the good news of the gospel is not that we have to get ourselves together before we come to Jesus, but that there is hope for us in the midst of our captivity and sin, in the midst of our blindness to God's saving grace, because Jesus comes to us. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning when we come to the Lord's table. When we come to this meal to celebrate and remember, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus comes to us. It's not us having to get ourselves prepared, get ourselves fired up, so we feel good enough about ourselves to feel worthy to come to the Lord's table. No, He comes to us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, and says, You are mine because I have bought you with a price. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you can never do what it takes to be good enough to earn that. This is not just a one-time event, right? We talk about, say, oh, Jesus came to me when he saved me, right? He came to me and, and he, he washed me and he saved me. I, I turned from my sins and I trusted in him. Yes, but he continues to come, right? He continues to come to us. And the reason we do this twice a month, the reason we do this on a regular basis is because we need that reminder. We need that picture of his body broken for us, that he came and he, he laid down his life, right? He poured out his blood for us as he died on that cross. This is not just, not just symbolism. We believe that Jesus comes, that he meets with us, that he nourishes us in the eating and drinking of these elements. This is not just for people who are members of Livingstone Church. Uh, if you are someone who is in good standing in a gospel-preaching church, we would invite you to come and to partake of the elements if you are a Christian who has put your trust in Christ. Uh, if you're not yet a Christian, we would ask that you remain in your seats, um, and we would we'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to trust in Jesus.